together this morning. If you will place a marker there, that would be most convenient for all of us because we're going to camp out there today. Isaiah chapter 53. Appreciate everyone being out on this Sunday morning. It's always good to be with God's people in God's house, worshiping God. We really appreciate all of the guests who are here. We have several with us this morning. You all are, you all are our honored guests. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah was a very, very unique prophet. He was a prophet whose head was above the clouds, but his feet stood on solid earth. The prophet Isaiah was a a man whose heart was focused on the things of eternity, but his hands touched the things of time. He was a man whose spirit was connected with the eternal counsel of God, but his body was in this very present moment in history. The year was about 740 B.C. and King Isaiah has died. The prophet is living in Jerusalem. The southern kingdom of Judah have completely lost their minds. They've turned their backs on God. They've rejected God. They've rebelled against God. They're running around like chickens with their heads cut off. They have forsaken the Lord. But in the midst of all of this turmoil in the midst of all of the chaos, in the midst of all of the, the, uh, the oppression that God's people are about to face by the hand of the Assyrian army because of their wickedness, in the midst of all of this, this very unique prophet Isaiah sees a very peculiar ray of hope. He sees one who is described as a servant. But this servant would be a suffering servant. This servant would be born of a virgin, but his grave would be with the wicked. From the very beginning of time, it was prophesied that this servant would be very beautiful and glorious, but in time, his appearance would be so marred that men would hide their faces from him. This servant that Isaiah saw would have the Holy Spirit rest upon him, but sadly, he would be cut cut off out of the land of the living. This servant that Isaiah saw would be called by many people, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's what men would call Him. But a week later they would cry out, Crucify Him, Crucify Him, Crucify Him. And He would have no form or majesty that men would be attracted to Him. This servant, this suffering servant that Isaiah saw would be one who would bring salvation and joy to all men. But, unfortunately, he would be a man of sorrows. He would be a man who is acquainted with grief. He would be a man who men hid their faces from. This is the suffering servant that Isaiah saw. And this servant was none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God, God's only begotten Son, would come to this earth, this place that we live in. He would come to this earth as a man of sorrows, as a man acquainted with grief, as a man who men hid their faces from. The Son of God would come to this earth and He would be despised and rejected by men. He would be a man who bore our iniquities. He would be a man who carried our sorrows. He would be a man who wore all of our sins and our iniquities and our transgressions on His bloody, beaten, flesh-stripped, lacerated back. 
That's the suffering servant that Isaiah saw. In the midst of the Son of God's suffering, in the midst of the Son of God's pain, in the midst of all of the turmoil that He would experience on this side of heaven, in the midst of all of that, the Bible tells us very, very clearly in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10 that it pleased the Lord to crush him and put his soul to grief. Some translations say that it was the will of the Lord to crush his only begotten son and to put his soul to grief. God found pleasure in the death of his son. When I read that, and when I think about that, I'm struck. Would any of you be pleased to send your son or your daughter to school and have people laugh at them, have people mock them, have people reject your son or your daughter, have people spit in your child's face, and ultimately have a crowd of people at school Kill your child. Would you be pleased in that? Would you delight in that? Would that be your will for your child? Of course not. Of course not. And so we ask ourselves, why in the world would it please the Lord to crush His only begotten Son? How in the world, how could a loving, gracious, uh, righteous God faithful God, be pleased to kill His only begotten Son. Be pleased to have His Son killed on a cross when God is not even pleased with the death of the wicked, as Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11 says. How could a faithful God be pleased to crush His Son? Listen to me very clearly. God was not pleased with the pain He was pleased with the outcome of the pain. God wasn't pleased with the suffering that Jesus would endure. He was pleased with the outcome. God wasn't pleased when He looked upon the sin-sick world and saw them as as sheep without a shepherd. God wasn't pleased when He looked upon the world and He saw them as people whose hearts and whose minds were set to do evil continually. God was not pleased when He looked upon the world and He had to turn to His right hand and, and say to His Son, It's time for you to go. It's time for you to go to that earth. It's time for you to suffer. It's time for you to be rejected. It's time for you to die for an entire world that hates you. God wasn't pleased in that. He wasn't pleased with the suffering that Jesus would endure. But ladies and gentlemen, He was pleased with the outcome of the suffering. And so we ask ourselves, what was the outcome? Because Christ suffered, he would see his offspring. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 10. The Bible says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. Some translations say he shall see his seed. Christ would see his family. He would see his offspring because he died. He would bear an eternal family that would never come to naught. During this time, it was a very shameful, awful, sorrowful thing for a man or a woman not to have offspring. 
If you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah was a barren woman. The Lord had closed her womb. And all throughout that chapter, we see how Hannah is constantly grieving, mourning, and lamenting at the fact that she won't have offspring. It was a shameful thing. If you remember back in Luke chapter 1, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who was a former barren woman, her womb is finally open, and she cries out to the Lord, Lord, thank you for removing my disgrace from me. She considered her barrenness as a disgrace. It was a shameful and it was a disgraceful thing for people not to have offspring. And what the Lord through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah is saying in this passage is, that wouldn't be the case for Christ. Christ would have offspring because he went to this earth, because he died, because he rose, he would see his eternal family. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10 describes this family. These are Christ's family is a royal priesthood, it is a chosen race, it is a people for his own possession. Christ's family are a people who have been called out of darkness into the Lord's marvelous light. There were people who once were not a people, but guess what? Now they are God's people. They are a part of the family of Christ. And the good news is all of us can be a part of that family. If we call on the name of the Lord, and if we obey the Lord, we can be a part of that family. All men, all women, everywhere, no matter uh, your your race, no matter your your background, no matter your social status, no matter uh, how much you know, all men everywhere have the right to become a part of the family of God. All men everywhere have the right to be offspring of Jesus Christ. Isaiah continues to say in Isaiah chapter 54, describing the future glory of the family of Christ. Verse 1, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Verse 2, enlarge the places of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. The family of God will be spread out abroad. It will be strengthened. It will go out to all nations, all people, all languages, all cultures. The gospel is for all. All men, all women have access into the family of God. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, but we are all one in what? Christ Jesus. We're all one in the family of Christ. And so we have a beautiful picture of Christ reigning over his family in Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, the Apostle John sees a multitude of people that cannot be numbered from every tribe, language, people, and culture. And they're all crying out, salvation belongs to our God. Behold the Lamb who sits on his throne. The Lamb of God is sitting on His throne in the midst of a multitude of people that cannot be numbered. And the text says in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. 
They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Verse 17, this is key. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Do you see it? That's exactly what Isaiah said would happen. He said, because Christ died, he would see his offspring. Here in Revelation chapter 7, he's sitting on his throne, surrounded by a multitude of people. He is their shepherd. He is their guide. He is their leader. He is their protector. And he is their God. God wasn't pleased that his son had to suffer. But he was pleased with the outcome of his son's suffering. Because Christ went to that cross, because Christ died, he would see his offspring, and we can be a part of that wonderful family. But not only that, because Christ died, he would prolong his days. The text says in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He shall prolong his days. He shall extend his years. Christ will live. Even though he died, he will live. Why? Because he is the resurrection and the life. Some 2,000 years ago, there was a very, very dark and dismal day. It was a day when it seemed as if sin, evil, wickedness, and Satan had prevailed and God lost. It was a very dark and dreary, horrible, horrible Friday afternoon. On this day, strange things began to happen. There's a three-hour period of darkness and blackness that covered the sky. The veil of the temple was spontaneously torn into from top to bottom. Rocks split. The earth shook. Dead men rose. And the Son of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was murdered. He was killed on this very black, dark, and dismal Friday afternoon. And for three whole days, For three whole days, it seemed as if all hope was lost. For three whole days, man was was forever lost in their sins. But guess what? On Sunday morning, on Sunday morning, that tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away. There were linen garments that were folded neatly in the tomb. And Jesus wasn't there, He was gone. He had risen. His days had been prolonged. Why? Because He came to this earth, because He suffered, and because He died. He is the resurrection and the life. And so in Revelation chapter 1, as the Apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos, all of his apostle buddies have been killed for the cause of Christ. Christians are suffering. The Roman army seems to be supreme. It seems as if all hope is lost. John is probably thinking, where in the world is God? And the Lord reveals Himself to John in all of His glory. John sees Jesus Christ wearing this long robe with a golden sash around His waist. John sees the Lord, he describes His hair as being white like wool and white like snow. His eyes are like a flaming fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. And His voice is like the roar of many waters. And when John sees this, he falls on his face as though dead. Because it was a tremendous sight. But the Lord rests His hand 
on John's shoulder and says to him in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I am the living one. I died and guess what? Behold, I am now alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and hell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Christ had to leave the glories of heaven. Yes, he had to come to this earth. Yes, he had to live among wicked, uh, sinful, unclean men and women. Yes, he had to do that. Yes, he had to be rejected. Yes, he had to be beaten and mocked and slapped and spit at and blindfolded and nailed to a cross, bloody, beaten and bare in front of his own mother. Yes, that happened to Jesus. But guess what? Guess what? Even though he died, he now lives. And the wonderful thing is, Since he did all that, we too can live. Since Christ died and rose, we too will rise. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as the Apostle Paul is writing to these Christians in Corinth about the importance of the resurrection and the blessings and the benefits that we have because Christ rose, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, guess what? All shall be made alive. Because Christ died and because he rose, all of us too will rise. All of us too will rise. And so we can be comforted as Paul comforted the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's going to be a day when God's going to be revealed from heaven with a cry of command. The archangel is going to shout. The trumpet is going to sound. And all of those who have died in the Lord will rise first. And guess what? All of us who are alive and remain will too be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. And we shall forever be with the Lord. That's what we can hope for. That's what we can have confidence in. Because Christ died and rose, when we die, we too will rise and live with Him for all eternity. God wasn't pleased at the suffering and the pain that His Son endured, but He was pleased with the outcome of the suffering. He was pleased that His Son would see His offspring And he was pleased that his son would prolong his days. But not only that, God was pleased that his son would accomplish his will. Isaiah chapter 53, in verse 10, the text says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Christ's death accomplished the will of God. Christ's death wasn't a mistake. Christ's death wasn't some uh, plan B, last resort type deal. No, Christ's death was the eternal will and plan of God from the very, very beginning of time. Before the very, very beginning of time, God's plan was to send His Son into this earth to redeem His people so that we would be joined in a very special, beautiful covenant relationship with Him. That was God's will. 
In Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, as the Apostle Peter is preaching to the crowd of hostile Jews who 50 days earlier had just killed Jesus on the cross, he says, this Jesus who you killed has been raised according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. This will of God was established from the very beginning of time. In John chapter 12 and verse 27, as Jesus is telling a multitude of people about his imminent death, burial, and resurrection, he asks a rhetorical question. He says to them, what shall I say to my father? Shall I say to my father, save me from this hour? Of course not. Why? For this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus told those people that he came to this world for the purpose of dying. That was God's will. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't last resort. That was the will of God that his son would die. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 42, Jesus is in the garden praying alone, so distressed that he's sweating blood. He says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Speaking of his death, and he says, not my what? Will, but thy will be done. Do you see it? Do you see it? God's will from the very beginning of time was for Christ to come to this earth, suffer, and die. And when Christ died, He accomplished that will. When Christ died, He fulfilled that will. And because Christ died, all of us benefit from that death. All of us benefit from the suffering and the death of Christ. All of us benefit because Christ has accomplished the will of God. Isaiah chapter 53 In verse number 11, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 11, we see the blessings that we receive because Jesus accomplished God's will. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Because Christ died, all of us sinful, wicked, despicable, horrible human beings can be accounted as righteous. Because God's will was accomplished, we can be righteous. Latter half of verse 11. The Lord shall bear our iniquities. We can be accounted righteous because the Lord has bore our iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you see it? Christ's suffering and his death was for me, it was for you, and it was for an entire world that was lost in sin. That's why it pleased God to crush him. And because Christ was so obedient to his Father God, because he was so humble to his Father God, because he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, he is now King of kings and Lord of lords. 
God has, has, has highly exalted Him and has given Him the name that is above all names. And at His name, every single knee will bow, every single tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Christ was obedient to His Father, He now reigns. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the head of the church. All things are under His feet. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22. He now sits on the throne. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. He has the right to hold the book of life. Revelation chapter 5 verse 4 through 7. It is He who is that victorious warrior who's riding on that white horse, who has the robe that has been dipped in blood, transcribed on it, King of kings and Lord of lords. He has conquered death. He has the keys of death and hell at His fingertips. He has beaten sin. He has beaten Satan. And all of us have life because of it. Because He was obedient to His Father. Do you see the magnitude of love that God had for us? That's why why John would say, John chapter 3 and verse 16, that God so loved us. Sometimes we overlook that word, so. God so loved us. He loved us so much that He sent His Son to die for us. John 15, verse 13, greater love, greater love hath no man than this. There hasn't been any act of love that has been greater than the love that God the Father and God the Son and the Spirit had for us. Greater love hath no man than this. Then he would lay down his life for his friends. People who hated him, people who rejected him, people who laughed at him and mocked him and spit on him are called his friends. That's how much he loved us. Paul talks about the love in Romans chapter 5. Scarcely will one die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God has demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. And because Christ did that, he is king of kings, he is Lord of lords, and all of us have life. And so we ask ourselves, how in the world could a loving, righteous, and faithful God be pleased to crush his perfect, sinless, only begotten son? A loving, righteous, faithful God can be pleased to crush his only begotten son because he loved me and because he loved you so much. And so as we go throughout our lives, when we get up every morning, when we go to work, when we go to school, when we spend time with our family, when we spend time with our friends, when we're on the road driving, wherever we are, never forget the magnitude of God's love for me, for you, and for this world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you now humbled before your high and exalted throne. You are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. We are so impressed by you and your plan for us from the very beginning of time. We are so humbled by the fact that you sent your son Jesus to this earth to suffer and to die for us. We pray that we will always be humbled by that magnificent sacrifice that you made for us. We rejoice in the fact that even though your son died, he got up three days later, he conquered sin, he conquered Satan, and he conquered death. And we're so thankful for that because now we have hope through your son's resurrection. 
We pray that we live our lives in great appreciation for this wonderful sacrifice. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, God did something tremendous for you. God sent his son to this earth to die for you. And so how shall you neglect so great a salvation? This is the perfect opportunity to obey the gospel. Confess the name of Jesus, repent of your sins, and be immersed in the watery grave of baptism, rising forth, walking in newness of life, and you can become a part of this wonderful family that we've talked about. If you've done that before, but you've fallen away and you would like to make things right this morning, if you have any other spiritual need, please come to the front while we stand and sing the song of invitation.